Welcome to Change the Narrative. I'm your host, J.D. Fuller, an African-American, licensed psychotherapist, professor, diversity coach, consultant, and author. We talk about the isms. We talk about the phobias, anything that marginalizes and oppresses. Everything we are not and everything we are is because of fear. Through a mental health lens, we'll have difficult conversations with celebrity guests, political activists, and everyone in between. Our mind will tell us whatever we want to believe, but the truth lives in the body, and that's where change occurs. Are you ready to change the narrative? Fatima Gilliam Esquire is the founder and CEO of the Azara Group. As a skilled strategist, business leader, negotiator, and trusted advisor, she has spent her career advancing her clients' goals. She leverages her expertise to provide real-world guidance. Her mission is to empower her clients to be strong business leaders, drive results, have successful careers, and be strategic in influencing others. She is an author, lawyer, consultant, public speaker, and entrepreneur whose career combines expertise in the law, diversity, human capital, leadership, stakeholder engagement, and negotiations helping organizations gain influence and strategic leverage, build coalitions and consensus, drive business and organizational goals, and advance workforce optimization. Miss Gilliam is the author of the groundbreaking book, Race Rules, What Your Black Friend Won't Tell You which is an innovative, practical manual of the unwritten rules relating to race, helping people navigate polarizing issues. Race Rules provides much-needed how-to advice to drive equity and behavioral change. Introducing a straightforward, universal three-step framework to unlearn racism, drive equity, and challenge misconceptions, it provides tips and tools on cross-racial interactions in people's personal and professional lives. Welcome to Change the Narrative with J.D. Fuller. So welcome, Fatima. I'm happy to have you. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. And I apologize for the challenges we had making this happen. I appreciate your patience with me as we figured it out. No, it's, it's working out. We're talking now. Yeah. So the first thing I want to talk about is you being on CNN to discuss the historical event involving your now deceased great uncle and this late but necessary victory. Will you talk about that? I'm more than happy to talk about it. Well, so my great, great uncle, Jesse Balmore, was executed by the U.S. military at the age of 27. And he was uh, with the 24th Infantry Regiment, which is a Buffalo Soldier Regiment. And it was, you know, one of these, let's just call it what it is, typical American history incidents of, you know, whites clashing with black people. And they weren't really excited to see black uh, men in uniforms and with weapons. And so there was an incident that involved the police, you know, dragging a, a black woman out of her home. And so a black soldier interjected and it just created this conflict. Needless to say, you know, over a dozen people died. Most of them were actually white. And then there was a court-martial trial. And 118 soldiers were tried for mutiny, disobeying orders, murder, and assault. And 110 of them were convicted. 19 of them were executed. The first group was executed, I think, within a day of the sentence being issued. And 13 people were killed, one of whom was my great uncle. And they were killed, you know, one by one. So my uncle Jesse was the seventh person to be hanged because the sentence said, you know, it was to be hung uh, by the neck until dead was oh, the sentence. God. And part of what also happened was this 
trial was a gross miscarriage of justice because there wasn't even due process. Part of it was, you know, these hundred, the 118 people were represented by one guy who wasn't even a lawyer and there wasn't due process. And then there was no oversight. So there was no appeals process. So they were, you know, convicted and then the sentence was carried out. And one of the things that came out of this was the United States government said, we need to reform our military courts. And it's through that, that an appeals process was generated or developed because there was no appeals process. So now if someone in a military court is convicted and they're supposed to get a death sentence, it's not going to be carried out without, you know, Washington and higher ups reviewing it as a result of this trial. And, you know, because there was no clemency process, no appeals process, nothing. And so my uncle, you know, was was murdered by the government. And then, you know, a box of his possessions, which included a letter to his mother, one dollar and a coat was mailed to her house. And in the letter, it said, you know, by the time you get this, I will already be in glory or something oh to that. And so this past week, this week, the U.S. Army, the military, finally, after 106 years, overturned the convictions of 110 Black soldiers. So that means that their sentences are overturned. They'll be listed as having honorable discharges. They can have tombstones if they don't have them. Some of the people were thrown into a mass unmarked grave and didn't have tombstones. My uncle was not in a mass grave, but he didn't get a tombstone until a couple of years ago. And he has a military type tombstone. And so because he was court-martialed for mutiny and executed, the information just had his name and date of death. Now it means that the tombstones can have additional information, like what regimen they're with, information about their service. So that's what comes with not being somebody that's had been convicted and, and hanged for, for mutiny. All right, I need a second. Wow, that's heartbreaking and wonderful and deserving. And I wish they also had to pay a whole lot of money for all the torment and torture. Well, they they, should. they say that they're going to allow survivor benefits, whatever that means. I mean, you know, Uncle Jesse was 27. He had no children, although he had something like 30 brothers and sisters, roughly. Wow. So I don't know what a survivor benefits looks like. Does that mean I get a shop at the PX? You know what I mean? Right. Like, yeah. what does that... Does that mean I get a discount on insurance with like, you know, USAA? What does that mean? Exactly. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Wow. That is just another story of so many that continued to surface and a history that is so filled with the persecution of people who are undeserving. Thank you for sharing that story. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you for letting me say it because I want more and more people to know about this incident and this miscarriage of justice and to know about my uncle Jesse. I've kept a picture of him up in my house for over 20 something years. And, and it's just, you know, it's been a point of sadness for Mm -hmm. so many people in my family. And that's, and that's just one of the 110 people. Exactly. Exactly. May they all rest in peace now. And I'm glad your family at least has that. All right. That was a big share. Thank you. Okay, back to you. So, Wellesley, JFK School of Government at Harvard, Columbia Law School, former Wall Street corporate attorney, 
former director of diversity recruitment for Citigroup, and now the CEO of the Azara Group. Am I pronouncing that correctly? Yeah. I was exhausted just reading that. And I had a stent at the UN between that as well. I can't believe I missed that. That's kind of unbelievable. I used to work for the United Nations World Food Program, and I was the head of finance and fundraising for North America. Okay. Wow. Here's, here's the question. What did you learn about academia and yourself on this journey that you didn't know before? That I didn't know about myself before? Mm-hmm. Or, the, or whatever. Make it, make it what works for you. Well, that's, a, gonna... that's a lot of academia. Yes, but that was like well in the past. So if somebody said to me today, hey, Fatima, do you want to go and get another degree? I'd say, hell no, hard. Well, I would hope not. (laughs) Like I'm all schooled up. (laughs) Yes, for sure. (laughs) I mean, I loved to learn and I, you know, I'm always trying to learn something new. I would say one thing that I have discovered is I'm a good writer and I really enjoy writing. And if somebody had asked me, you know, 20 years ago or when I was in school, would I write a book? I would have said no. And I wouldn't have even thought I was necessarily even a good writer, Mm. but I've become a good writer. And interestingly so, like when I went to Wellesley, I was a mostly an economics major. I mean, that was my primary major, but I really wanted to do the study abroad program in France. So I had to take all these classes that really like pushed me, reading French literature, and the like, and uh, to qualify to do junior year abroad. So by the time I came back, I only needed two classes to be a French major. So I became an econ and French double major. So I just like picked up the French trying to get my trip, right? (laughs) But surprisingly, French has been really impactful. And, and the way that it's been impactful, like one, when I had a job at the UN, you had to like speak a second language. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was a job requirement, never, not even though I never used it. But the other, and then I also like have friends and relationships of people in France that I never would have anticipated. But the main thing is that studying French made me a better writer. Okay. I was a crappy writer before. And I had this professor at Wellesley, I had her as a first year and I had her as a senior. And she said to me, had I not seen and witnessed this myself, I wouldn't have believed it, but I've never seen someone's writing improve so drastically in a four-year time span. I was like, well, I guess that was terrible. (laughs) (laughs) But the reason is, is because if you think about it, when was the last time you had grammar? Like seventh Mm. grade. So for me to be able to understand French, I had to like think about English grammar to then apply it to French grammar. And in doing so, I became significantly better with my writing skills and my grammar. That's amazing. So you had to go through a lot to get there, but you got there and you're happy to be there. I got the trip. (laughs) I got the trip. You got the trip. (laughs) On top of it, you got the trip. We're going to talk about the book in a little while, but first we're going to get just a couple of free tips from you. Okay. So let's see. What do you think the key component is in the art of negotiation? First of all, don't ask, don't get. Mm. Okay. I mean, no one's going to be clairvoyant. They're not going to know what you want unless you say that you want it. So some key things are, if you want it, you got to ask for it because no one's going to ask for it for you. The other thing is don't negotiate against yourself. Mm. So by that, I mean, if 
you know, when you're trying to think about, am I going to ask for that? Am I not going to ask for that? Am I going to ask for this amount if it's a financial thing? Or maybe it's like a bundle of other things. And you sit there and say, "Mm, maybe that's pushing it too hard. I don't know if I'm going to do that. Let me whittle it down. No, let them whittle it down. (laughs) You shouldn't whittle it down for yourself. That's negotiating against yourself. So instead, you know, there's a lot of strategy, like maybe people will think you're being outlandish and ridiculous. Okay, well, there's that kind of risk. But the main thing is, if you don't ask for it, you're not going to get it. And your best bet is to ask for, you know, some of the core things up front, quick and early. And don't like lower what you think you want to get because you're overly trying to, you know, finesse or strategize. That's negotiating against yourself. So just go for it and see what happens. So- you know, like you said, there's a little bit of a risk and, and I guess, you know, this is a question. Is it the difference between, you know, confidence and cockiness that has you comfortably ask for what you think you're worth in terms of negotiating financially? Sometimes it could be cocky. Sometimes it could be confidence, but I think you might need a little bit of both. Okay. Fair. That's you know, fair. I mean, life yeah. is better if you got a little swagger. Okay. Okay. I feel that. I feel that. Okay. The other question about sort of tied into what you currently do is what do you think makes the difference between a good leader and a great leader? I think a great leader really tries to understand the people around them and what their motivations are. So they're not always, you know, trying to achieve whatever their business or professional objective is, but they're also taking into consideration who the people are in the mix, right? So that may be, how are you engaging with someone on your side or the other side, or that's a key stakeholder, thinking about it from like a diversity perspective or lens. Is this a woman? Is it a man? Is the person trans? What's their race? What's their religion? Where are they from geographically? If you can sort of understand those aspects, then it can make you better connect with other people so that you can lead them and you can get people to follow you. That's great advice. That's really good. I see you continue your focus in diversity and inclusion. Is there no longer a space for equity in DEIJ? You mean with the backlash as we enter a society that starts banning books? Um, It depends. I mean, there are a lot of organizations that are still very committed to diversity. And then there are others that aren't. And the ones that aren't, I mean, were they ever really committed to begin with? Mm-hmm. Or were they just doing it because they felt either pressure from shareholders or community organizations or their employees or for, for customers? So they weren't even serious about it to begin with. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, when, and this is not just for like the diversity space, but when George Floyd was murdered and then you had all of these people protesting in the streets and I was having conversations with friends and they're like, oh, this is so great. We're going to like, move to some new place in society. And and I was like, mm, yeah, okay, not really. I said, yeah, so we have people that are interested today. It's going to be temporary. And people are like, oh, Fatima, you're such a cynic. No, a realist. And I said that they're interested in it today. And then six months from now, their cause is going to be like rescuing puppies. <laughs> Fair. Absolutely <laughs> true. No lies told. You know, so it's sad, but no, there are organizations that are still very committed to it. And at the end of the day, there's no stopping the browning of America. So, you know, people may not like it, 
They may have issues with it, but you can't stop it. So then the bigger question becomes for an organization, do you want to become obsolete or do you want to evolve and pivot and move with the times? So the organizations that want to cling to the past, then they're going to have these archaic models that people are just not going to buy into. They're not going to want to work there. They're not going to want to buy their products. So I don't see it lasting in the long term. It may be beneficial for them in the short term, but they're not going to win the long term game. So... There's something about that that's really coming up for me. And that is, you know, equity is such a specific thing that people want to keep trying to make equality. They just keep trying to turn equity and equality. And I noticed that they throw it into sentences. Well, like if I'm trying to be equitable, you know, I have to think about it. And they're, all they're ever talking about is equality. And so that's why I wonder, while diversity and inclusion, I agree, I agree with you, they will, companies and, and schools will fall behind and they won't be competitive. I absolutely agree with you. I, I feel a little bit discouraged about the true aspect of equity coming into play. I, I don't think that's going to happen in my lifetime. Do you have anything, both being realist, what's which, which your lens? I don't think it's going to happen. In our lifetime, I don't think it's going to happen for 50 to 100 years minimum. I mean, that's just the reality. We've been at this struggle since the 1500s. And so here we are 20, you know, we're in the 21st century and we're still struggling with these things. I mean, part of the difficulty is what you're talking about, this conflating or overlapping and and wanting to have equality or analyze things from a from equality perspective versus equity and if that's going to be the only focus then you can never have any corrective measures you can't have affirmative action you can't have anything that tries to address what's been happening in the past with systems and structures but people for some reason you know some of these folks it's like they want to act or believe like history started the moment they woke up that morning and that's not what that's not the society that we live in. You have to look at it from a context. When you look at it from a context, then you have to have corrective measures or you can never fix anything. And not that something like affirmative action is perfect, but if people want to get rid of it, what is their substitution for it? Mm-hmm. Right? So if the goal is just to get rid of everything because we have to make everything equal, which really is not making it equal, it's just reinforcing, you know, these white supremacist structures, then what they really want is underneath it is they just wanted the status quo to begin with. Appreciate that honesty. Thank you. So that's going to segue, that's going to be the segue into talking about your new book, Race Rules, What Your Black Friend Won't Tell You. I read that this book boldly says the quiet part out loud to help advice sink in and resonate. Why this book? Why now? I'll tell you what the catalyst was for me to write the book. So I was watching the news one night. I started writing this book in 2018, so five years. And I was watching the news, and it was another story of a Karen going viral for calling the police for no reason. And as I watched the story, I thought about the ignorant things that people say um, around me, some of the some of it being like in my personal life, my professional life. Sometimes it's clients for just diversity consulting work, and this sort of rinse and repeat, repetitive questions. And then I also started thinking about 
the things that white people say around me when they don't realize I'm black. And as I watched this news story, I thought, white people need a manual. They need a manual. I'm going to write that manual. And so I decided to write this unvarnished truth book to and say the quiet part out loud to tell them the things that people don't always say to their face so that they can understand, right? Like we've all, people have thought, we've experienced this. You could have a white person and a, and a person of color have an encounter and they have two different perspectives of what just happened in that encounter. So the white person walks away and thinks, oh, we're cool, you know, or maybe there was a misunderstanding and, and you know, all is good, whatever, we're friends. Okay. And then you can have the person of color walk away and be like, I can't stand that person. I can't believe that I have to be in the next meeting with them or go to my friend's wedding and see them there. Right. And so I'm explaining things that people won't say because a lot of white people walk away and they think everything is okay. It's like, we are not okay. We are not cool with you. Right. And so I'm explaining that the, the things that they say and do and the behaviors and the choices that they make so that they can say, oh, that was offensive. Let me tweak that. Let me do better. What do you do when they don't know that you are black? What, what, how, do you, how do you tolerate that? I mean, you know, frankly, it's really annoying. I'm not even going to pretend like it doesn't, you know, irritate me. You know, I was talking to someone the other day about, you know, being light-skinned and how people mistake me. And the person was like, oh, and started talking about me passing. And I was like, I don't pass. You don't understand what passing is. I may get mistaken for being white, but I definitely do not pass. That is a choice and that is a different category. So, I mean, it does, it does bother me. You know, I'm someone who has always been very proud of who I am as a black woman, you know, and then there's a lot of assumptions. People are like, oh, which one of your parents is white? Neither. Which one of your grandparents? None of them. (laughs) So, yeah. And then sometimes also from people of color, black people, right? Not uh, seeing it and, and you know, saying, oh, well, you're like biracial or multi. I don't consider myself that because, you know, my whole family grew up with the one drop rule going back for several hundred years. So if this is this is who I am. I'm a black American woman and proud of it. You know, it breaks my heart that colorism has done so much damage in the community. And, you know, we've been taught to uphold white supremacy and brown and black bodies just by virtue of the internalized oppression that has been bestowed upon us in the process of, of, of being marginalized. It just breaks my heart, like, you know, that we find the need to categorize while people are categorizing us. And, and I don't think it's based in anything other than just trying to figure out, you know, it's, it feels sort of like a, a survival skill to me. You know, that we're always trying to figure out what, what, what's, what, where am I going to be? Where are you going to be? You know, it's, it's like a, you know, it's a post-traumatic stress response, I believe, even though it comes out conversationally. Or post-traumatic slave disorder. Well, I love, I love her. I love that book. <laughs> love, love, love. I, I, I actually, I teach a class 
in uh, decolonizing mental health to clinicians and um, psychiatrists virtually and absolutely show that that her just a piece of Joyce DeGruy and they're just blown away by it. And it's so, so beneficial to rename, right? I just, I have to be careful because as a clinician, I also want people to know, no, this is a trauma response. When, when I am triggered, it is racial trauma. I don't want you trying to minimize it and recategorize it in any way. It's, it's a real thing. And so I, I hear you and I'm sorry that that happens to you. That, that makes me, you know, I have compassion because I can imagine how annoying that is. And I also have compassion for our people because I, I see where it comes from and it breaks my heart. Does that make sense? No, it does. And thank you for saying that. Mm-hmm, for sure. So I saw that you said that this book is a guidebook and a comprehensive practical manual for the unwritten rules as they relate to race. Can you say more about that? You started to dabble in that a little bit. Can you get into that a little bit deeper to just tantalize the potential reader? Sure. So let me, I'll tell you how the book is very different, right? So in terms of practical advice, so there are a lot of books that are out there that are really helpful that will talk about what racism is. They'll talk about history. And sometimes they're also very autobiographical. And that can be illuminating for a reader to sort of understand historical context to understand racism in America, how it shows up. And then what? Then what happens after somebody reads that? And I think a lot of times people will take that in and there's no change in behavior. I'm in the advice game, right? As when I was an attorney, you know, I'm still an attorney, like practicing law, consulting work, I give advice. And so what I'm focused on is behavioral change and giving people tools and tips to modify their behavior. And so I've written this book to give people advice. So it's a choose your own race knowledge adventure. You know, each chapter does not depend on the previous chapter to get some information. You know, I write for what I call the lazy reader because I'm a lazy reader, you know? <laughs> so I've, I've got like bullet points and each chapter has an illustration summarizing key aspects of the, of the chapter. I have translation charts. You said this, we heard this. Why don't you say this instead? You know, and then I also take, I have some history. So I do talk about, you know, our origin story with slavery and and indigenous genocide, bringing it through the New Deal and the Homestead Act and things like that. So there's like history, you know, but then I also have reflective questions for people. And I'm just getting, sometimes I give them better talking points. The point is, is I'm trying to meet people where they are, which is, this is a difficult topic. People are lazy. They don't want to handle too much. And so it's like, you want to understand cultural appropriation? Go to that chapter. Voting rights? I got you there. N-word? I got that for you too. Culture, you know, you want to understand black fishing or microaggressions or, you know, defining race or, you know, there's just a whole bunch of their 31 different rules. And so it's very different because it's like lots of different topics to help people to change their behavior so that they can have, they can engage in more equitable decision making. And so there are these very different topics that are included in there. And then I also include a universal rule to make a decision, no matter what the topic is, which I call my bedrock race rule for making better decisions. And so that's about how to choose to disrupt racism every day. And then I give the reader three steps to how to make a decision, whether that's like, should I say that? Should I not say that? Should I do that? Should we put out that kind of a product? You know, should I do this at the barbecue? 
run it through my bedrock race rule and you're going to end up in a better place than if you're just left on your own. Sounds like everybody needs to read it. And I just want to make one thing clear. Ain't nobody coming to the cookout. We got to stop that shit. We got to keep it. We need to just start setting some real hard limits with that. Um, Yeah. And I even, and and if you want, you know, you can decide because this will take like, you know, take like three minutes to do it. But if you want, I can read you my favorite section, my favorite passage from the book. Yeah, let's do it. We have a little time. Okay. So like I said, each chapter is a rule. And this is from my chapter where the rule is, it's not personal when people of color don't want to discuss race. And so before that, I explain why that can be the case. And then I can, I end with an analogy at the end of the chapter and the you in my writing is a white person. Okay. What it's like talking to you about race. Let's put this in perspective. Recall life living in the pandemic. Do you remember that haunting feeling you felt that never went away, that the virus was lurking in every corner? You couldn't escape it because there were reminders everywhere, on the news, online, in social media, and when you saw your neighbors or people on the street. You felt a sense of omnipresence as you walked around, always on high alert, looking at others, seeing if they wore masks, looked ill or coughed. You noticed them and observed how they reacted to you. You were in constant fear of your death. Loved ones may die or did die, and you felt perpetual anxiety. Your mental health was impacted along with your physical health from the stress. You had trouble sleeping. You weren't even safe in your own home because the virus could come to your door. You didn't know if you could trust the government or if officials had your best interests at heart, unsure if they would do something to kill you. You felt powerless, like as, as if there were nothing you could do to change things to make your life better since you weren't in control. You had to resign yourself to your circumstance, but you didn't want to accept your reality. You wanted to resist and somehow make things better. When you tried, you didn't succeed. That's what it's like living under racism every day, 24-7, 365. Racism is a pervasive and visible force, just like COVID. There's no escape. It's constant, never a break or reprieve. It's isolating and marginalizing. It attacks your life, bank account, livelihood, housing, healthcare, schools, and dinner table, and separates your family. You want the government to do something about it, but politicians want you to laissez-faire your way to non-solutions absolving themselves of responsibility, willfully blind to its impact. You suck it up. You deal with big picture systemic issues. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Heal yourself. Pave your destiny. Avoid your own death or murder. Welcome to living like a black or brown person in America. But with racism, there's no vaccine coming. No magic pill to inoculate society. This is what it's been like since the 1500s. It isn't getting better. There are new strains, new waves, and invisible resurgences mutating, reinventing itself, seemingly dormant, but always there stalking, ready to strike and viciously kill. This is the reality. It's bleak. When you want to discuss racism, sometimes people of color only want to discuss it with those who understand what they've gone through, not white folks who will trivialize things, which is akin to speaking to an anti-masker who berates innocent and defenseless store clerks. That's you questioning racism in their experiences. You're the anti-masker, anti-vaxxer in the conversation. When you come with covert microaggressions, overt aggression, a lack of knowledge, and a rejection of facts. Now, can you understand why no one wants to talk to you? They're already too busy trying to literally survive. 
That's great. That's great. Well done. Well written. Yeah, my body got all tense through that one. I got to use some Resma Minikin to get me out of that. That was, that's very, very well uh, explained. And, you know, my only, my only concern about white-bodied people is their ability to not feel that kind of intensity I just felt from what you, you wrote and read. Mm-hmm. You know? and, and I don't know if that's, it's, if that's a thing that can be changed, but being able to even sit with that, maybe that's the beginning to it. So, so thank you for, for doing what you did. Well, with that analogy, you know, for what you're saying, you know, will it, can everyone receive that? No, not everybody can, because not everybody wants to take themselves on as a project, right? So not everybody wants to evolve. Some people are happy just to take selfies and watch reality TV and just go about life as if, you know, there, there aren't wars happening and people aren't being killed by the police. But some people do care. And so this book is for those that do care, or at the very least, just don't want to be so offensive. And so I put in that analogy because never in our time had we had such a perfect analogy that was experienced by the entire world Mm -hmm. of what it could potentially, you know, what it could feel like. And it was brief, but I'm trying to point out that this is every day. You know what? You answered my last question and you tied that all together so nicely that I'm just going to ask where people can find you, where where they can buy your book. If you have social media, just lay all that out. Would you before we end? Sure. So my book is available on Amazon. It's up now. So they can buy it wherever they find books, Amazon, Barnes and Noble. And I encourage people if they want to support this book, to ask their local bookstore to carry it or including their local library, but it's available for people to get now. And then in terms of finding me, you can find me at FatimaGilliam.com and I have all my social media handles on my website. Well, Fatima, this was great. And I really appreciate the time that you took, the patience you had. Thanks for coming on today, sharing your experience, your passion, your latest project. And I love when you said, you know, people don't want to take themselves on as a project, you know, that see people who go to therapy, take themselves on as a project. Uh, That's, that's a good connection. I'm going to draw to what I do or what you do. (laughs) And that's a phrase from a family friend, you know, has been saying that for years. And I think it's perfect. Yeah, I do too. As far as I'm concerned, there will never be enough educational material on racism and how it hurts all of us. That's a piece that people forget. And the world is getting browner and whether you like it or not, you better figure it out. And even if it's not in my lifetime, I know it's happening and that's pretty, pretty comforting. If I can just say one. Yeah, yeah, for sure. One thing that I think is really important for people to recognize or think about when it comes to race is that it's not neutral. You know, my, one of the things I'm trying to say is that there is no neutral zone. You're either standing in opposition to racism or you are standing in support of it. And so that is what I'm trying to you know, hold people accountable. That's some of the unvarnished truth, the quiet part out loud is that I'm holding people accountable. You know, that you can't be in the neutral, right? It was, I think it was Desmond Tutu that says, you know, if you're in the neutral zone, then you're on the side of the oppressor, right? I'm just paraphrasing. And so I'm trying to highlight that for people. And what I'm also trying to highlight is try, trying to get them to expand their definition of what they think racist racism is. 
because people want to think that racism is like the crazy person who shows up in Buffalo with the AR-15 and shoots intentionally to kill people of color, as opposed to what is happening in people's lives and so and the daily choices that they make. And so I'm trying to move people away from white exceptionalism that, oh, it's not me. It's all the other stuff over there. And I want people to stop othering who and what is racist. And by othering, I don't mean the marginalization, but it's like, look at yourself, look in the mirror. And if the impact of what you're doing upholds white supremacy, that is what counts. Not the intent, not the hearts and minds mentality, but what is the actual impact of what you're doing? And if it's hurting people, then you need to correct it. That's a perfect outro. I'm not even gonna add anything. All I'm gonna say is thank you for changing the narrative in your work and in this book. I look forward to reading it. I've already got a plan to recommend it to a group of people who I think it would greatly benefit. Um, So yeah, just thank you so much for coming on. This was really a great conversation. I know we even went over time and it was well worth it. Thank you, Fatima. And thank you so much for having me. I really, really appreciate it. Excellent. Good luck with the book. Thank you. Please be sure to like, subscribe, and follow wherever you get your podcasts. And also leave us a review. Let us know what you think. Thank you for listening to Change the Narrative with J.D. Fuller.